The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Wednesday the 17th of October with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. The leaders of uh, the 28 European countries will meet today in Brussels to agree the terms of the relationship the 27 countries remaining in the EU will have after Brexit with the UK from April of next year. The talks are deadlocked over the Irish border. Europe wants the UK to sign up to a backstop for the North. This would mean Northern Ireland would remain inside the Customs Union unless and until the border question is resolved. The Conservative government relies on the support of 10 DUP MPs who say the backstop would put a border in the middle of the Irish Sea and would not be acceptable to them. Prime Minister May says now she won't agree to dividing the Union with Northern Ireland, an agreement that she signed up to last December. Mairead McGuinness is a local Fine Gael MEP and Vice President of the European Parliament and on the line, no doubt. Mairead McGuinness, you're watching this closer than most. It appears as though uh, there's uh, the prospect of two backstops now, uh, or a two-tier backstop, if you like. One for Northern Ireland, which would uh, be in place for an unlimited time period, and uh, the second backstop for the rest of the UK, which would be for a limited period of time. But they may extend that time by a year. The transition period may be extended by another 12 months. Well, good morning, Michael. I think your summary is is, is just spot on. Uh, however, the terminology is, is evolving all the time, and, and clearly the backstop is our, our crucial issue. Some are calling this proposal for an extended period beyond the transition, the long stop. Um, but whatever we call it, um, we're at a situation where at this stage, going into this dinner this evening, there is no resolution on the withdrawal agreement because it has to be signed off first before we can firm up on the future relationship and therefore this text on Ireland and ensuring that there's no hard border is an absolutely core principle for the European Union negotiator which is Michel Barnier with the support of all member states. We understand and you've outlined that the British Prime Minister has other pressures uh, and we're hoping that perhaps this um, idea which is evolving uh, from last night and today may assist her that is the British Prime Minister, in being able to move forward. But frankly, I don't expect that at dinner this evening um, or indeed afterwards Mm. we will have white smoke. I think um, we might have um, a a bit of uh, timber and and maybe a match, but I don't think we'll we'll strike it this evening. And I think we may not even see that tomorrow. Um, And there's uncertainty then what would happen around November um, uh, there's already suggestions that, and I think it's valid, that the leaders will not set a date in November if they've nothing to discuss. So we will see, I hope, some movement. Yeah, and if there is movement, uh, I think the expectation is that you're talking about a, a blueprint uh, and uh, the I's will be dotted and uh, the T's crossed afterwards. Uh, but uh, of course, any deal will have to be ratified by the British Parliament. And there is a, a theory going around it, it seems, that this is what the British Prime Minister wants. She wants it to go down to the wire uh, to be able to go in to Parliament and say it's a take it or leave it scenario. Well, I think what's interesting uh, thus far today, and it's early days, I know we're an hour ahead here, I haven't seen a reaction yet to this latest development from those who are 
firm in their desire for Brexit or indeed uh, the party propping up the UK government, the DUP. So I think we'll have to watch and see the reaction. I hope they'll they'll analyse and see that this is perhaps a solution to uh, a difficult problem that they have. I think that the British Prime Minister has an earlier date, if you like, with a significant vote, and that is the budget in the United Kingdom. I think that's uh, October 28th or 29th, where um, she will need support to get her budget Mm. over the line. And I, I gather and I presume that that's looming large in her um, political uh, agenda. So I think that's also significant when it comes to what may emerge from this week. And then, as I say, November is uh, open at this stage. I would hope uh, that there is progress this week and that we can see that uh, nailed down in November. Uh, But as I've been on so frequently talking to you and debating this issue, we've always managed to miss deadlines rather than hit them. So one has to be a bit cautious about too much optimism. On the other hand, we don't have exactly much time left. And remember, we can't leave this till the end of March because we will really um, need something to vote on here in the European Parliament early in the new year because we have to give our consent to a withdrawal agreement, as does the House of Commons have to vote on this. So, you know, we're running out of road. Mm. Uh, and uh, as you say, uh, deadlines keep moving. Uh, can this go on forever? Is it a case of running out of, of road? Uh, because, uh, of course, uh, the Prime Minister triggered Article 50 uh, and uh, mm. that in itself is a legal act. Uh, and this deadline of March 29th, that's not a movable feast, is it? It's not a movable feast. The only way that that could change is would be rather by request of the United Kingdom to delay um, the, the implementation of Article 50 beyond the end of March. I don't see that as a realistic possibility. Um, therefore, I think we're more likely to look at trying to work through what is quite an intractable uh, problem and uh, provide for flexibility on the time after the transition where we work out uh, a customs arrangement which avoids the necessity to trigger this backstop, which uh, some in the UK are absolutely opposed to. But remember, the text of that backstop has been on the table since March. The UK agree in principle to what it's trying to achieve. There's just a difficulty about the wording and how it is interpreted. And therefore, the latest development today, I think, is an attempt to provide space and time, and maybe political space and time, for the British Prime Minister to, um, you know, get her, if you like, uh, numbers on board and to convince uh, her own party and government that this is a good solution to a problem which we all have. Is it possible to have a a, a two-tier backstop without having a a two-tier Brexit, that Northern Ireland, in other words, leaves the European Union in a different way than the rest of the United Kingdom, because I think there must be concern that that's how it'll be interpreted by unionists. Yeah, I think, and that's why I'm I'm, I'm just waiting to see how it is being interpreted. But let's be just clear on the first step of it. When March, the end of March comes, the United Kingdom, including Northern Ireland, leaves the European Union, but nothing changes. Uh, in theory, this is all subject to an agreement mm. until the end of a transition period. Which is almost three is, years under this proposal, it, isn't it? it? Well, yes, but mm. but for the moment it's not, it's two. Yeah. So the proposal or this suggestion, which um, is in the air, is that because it's quite difficult to um, see how we will achieve uh, an invisible border on the island of Ireland with uh, the proposal of this uh, customs arrangement that the UK have come forward with, more time 
um, is expected to be needed to tease that out in detail. Mm. If it were easy, I figure we would have done it two years ago, but it's not an easy one to crack. Now, the, the concern that we have in terms of the EU side is that the backstop is a pivotal part of the withdrawal agreement. So I could not envisage the European Parliament, for example, uh, voting for a withdrawal agreement which excluded a backstop mm. on the island of Ireland. We voted very strongly in favour of it. And equally, the leaders have supported this backstop proposal because there are very big issues here. Okay, um, but in two, or three, in two or three years from now, I mean, if uh, the technology is in place uh, to police uh, the border and all of the senses necessary with cameras or whatever else may be invented by that stage, uh, what does it mean if this backstop is permanent for Northern Ireland uh, and is not permanent for the rest of the United Kingdom? Uh, I suppose uh, the first answer to that is that the United Kingdom will leave the European Union as anticipated. But if Northern Ireland remains in the European Union, does it remain in the United Kingdom? No, um, I I think you're coming to a wrong conclusion using the same um, facts that I'll come to a different conclusion on. The United Kingdom will leave, or rather, Northern Ireland will leave because it's part of the United Kingdom. And it's more than just a technological um, breakthrough that we're looking for, because remember what we all hope because this is particularly important for Ireland, is that when we sit down and thrash out the details of a trade agreement um, with the United Kingdom, that it is as close as possible, as close as it almost is today, even though they'll be outside. And it is also around regulation, because if um, Northern Ireland milk has continued to flow into um, cooperatives Mm -hmm. in the south of Ireland, it has to be regulated on the same level. And those are tricky issues which have not been... I suppose, um, worked through by the negotiators. So I don't see it as um, you have proposed it there. Others might read it that way. That's not how I read it, because at the end of March, the UK legally, uh, under Article uh, 50, will have left the European Union, but Mm. the UK also requested a transition period, which the European Union has agreed to, and now we have this additional proposal. Now, I have to say that nothing's been signed up to, so all of this is conjecture and proposal and draft. Um, But we do need to start signing pieces of paper here so that people know what they're going to be dealing with, but particularly the people I represent in Midlands Northwest. Mm. Um, A lot of them would have concerned, and a lot of businesses, as you know, are, you know, cautious on investment Mm. uh, because they don't know what the future holds. There is a very big... um, uh, getting a Brexit ready event in Monaghan on Friday, which I think is very timely, so that businesses, particularly the border region, uh, know that there's support and help from government agencies to help them through this very difficult period of huge uncertainty. Okay, but it's not just uh, the regulatory uh, alignment, it's also how that is policed and how the border is managed. And if uh, Northern Ireland is closer linked to the European Union than it is to the United Kingdom, people in Northern Ireland will wonder if they've left the United Kingdom. Uh, no, um, I think we're stretching it a bit, Michael, if I may. I hope you don't mind me accusing you of that. Mm. Well, I think, that's what, I think that's what the concern of uh, the well, members no, of the no, DUP might legal, be. Yeah, well, perhaps. But legally and factually, the United Kingdom is uh, of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. And while the majority in the North voted to remain in Europe, there is a legal requirement that the United Kingdom in its entirety will leave the European Union at Mm. the end of March. What we hope is, and this will not just apply to trade between um, Northern Ireland uh, and Ireland, we hope that the UK and the European Union strike 
a particularly positive trade uh, agreement and relationship, not just on on details of goods, but also on regulatory uh, issues, including security and other issues as well, that will leave us, you know, breathtakingly close. There may be um, huge opposition to that amongst those who voted to leave because Mm. they may perceive it that they haven't left. But that's for, I suppose, another day's work. But this is the whole point of Brexit, isn't it? So that uh, the people of uh, uh, Britain and Northern Ireland can be sovereign, that they can make their own decisions and rules and laws and regulations. But if one part leaves in a a way that's different than the other part, well, then you have to question what that means, particularly if the other part, namely Northern Ireland in this instance, is closer linked to Europe than it is in that sense to the United Kingdom. But I think you're interpreting an outcome which we don't envisage happening. So in other words, um, the best case scenario would be that the backstop, which we hope will be contained, well, which is mm. the withdrawal agreement draft and which will be agreed to, is never required because it will be delivered through the future relationship we develop with the entirety of the United Kingdom. And just to answer the point around um, you know, sovereignty and wanting to draft your own rules, I think that many in the UK now understand that actually the European Union has the highest standards on many issues. It has a, a you know, a European mm. food safety agency. It has a chemicals agency. It, it regulates medicines. And already um, in many of those agencies, the British Prime Minister said they want to stay involved. Now, they won't be as involved as voting in them, but they will be part of them because guess what? It makes a lot of sense to be part of a very strong regulated um agency which promotes positive um, issues in all of the sectors I've just mentioned and there are many others as well. Okay there are people and I'm not speaking directly to them because they perhaps wouldn't listen to to my perspective and I respect that who think that if you just sever like chop off completely any links with Europe that the world will be and the sun will shine all the time and that life will be rosy and we won't be regulated at all and that's not how the world works as we all know you need to have certainty if you're in an industry. You need to know what the rules are, how the laws apply, and how they are uh, changed. So uh, I think there's going to have to be some straight talking, perhaps within mm. the United Kingdom itself, on these issues. It's not easy. Yeah, no, it's not. Uh, the simplest solution would be to unite Ireland, wouldn't it? Well, it's not a simple solution. I think we should try and not mix um, the question of the future um, of the island of Ireland. But Brexit would be... Brexit. Bre- Bre- I think it's a really... Let me just finish the point, Michael, if I may, because I think it's it just, to some extent, trivialises um, both issues. And be very clear that there is a mechanism under the Good Friday Agreement which provides for a way, should there be an indication of support for a united Ireland, that there would be a vote, a consent procedure. Mm. The people would have to decide. Um, and I think separately, Brexit has to be dealt with. And I, I'm concerned sometimes when both get mixed together because... For some of the community in the north of Ireland, the issue of United Ireland is something that they are fearful of. And we have to respect the differences and not uh, fuel fears and concerns. Yeah, but we can still enter into straight talking, as you said, we should. Uh, And the reality is that if the biggest stumbling block is the border, there wouldn't be that block to stumble over if there wasn't a border. Well, Michael, I, I, as you know, like straight talking, but I'm straight talking on Brexit. And I will not mix the two issues, as others will do, because I think it is inappropriate and doesn't help us deal with the first issue, which has to be resolved, which is the withdrawal agreement, the Brexit deal, 
and the future relationship. I think we should and do have conversations about the future. Mm. But there are many issues to be dealt with, including the difficulties posed by Brexit for uh, community relationships within Northern Ireland. I mean, there were groups here yesterday, uh, victims of terror um, on all sides, and indeed Spanish victims of terror. And, you know, sometimes we have to be very careful, particularly I do, as opposed to, to your role is different. I have to be really sensitive to the different perspectives uh, on our island. Um, and indeed, um, you know, the stories of, of how people have suffered through the trouble. But if you were to and do that, really, suffer. I mean, if you were really to show respect to the unionist community, you'd forget about this backstop idea because they see that as a, a way of dividing the union, that they are no longer united with the rest of Britain. Now, Michael, with the greatest respect to your question, I think you're being unnecessarily provocative uh, and I won't rise to that. What I'm doing, um, and I hope it's well, responsibly done, what the Irish government are doing, what Europe is doing, is understanding that if there was a hard Brexit on mm. the border it would be extremely damaging okay. uh, to the situation G- on the island. Okay, uh, can, can I ask you, do you really think I'm being unnecessarily provocative or, or do you think that I'm asking you to address unionist concerns? No, I think the first, actually. I mean, I address unionist concerns both publicly and privately and I respect they have a different view. I work with colleagues from the unionist... And do you not accept here. that they believe think, that the backstop is dividing the union? Only... Um, if you interpret it as being the first thing that will happen. And I think there's where no. the understanding needs to be clarified. To, In other words... To, to whom? Reason, to to whom? Live, to, but no, but clarify to whom? I, I, I clarify to you if you listen first. Well, what about the unionists? Well, let me just speak, because I'm, I'm, I'm speaking to you uh, directly. Um, in relation to the backstop, it is only there as a, a strong insurance policy to, to guarantee that should all else fail, this is a requirement. And therefore, the onus and focus is on how we work towards this strong relationship in the future where we don't use the backstop. And we do have to try and reassure unionists that this is not an attempt, um, as they would say, to annex Northern Ireland. I, this was put to me, for example, in interviews uh, that I've done on, on the British media recently, uh, even from the you know, colleagues, uh, political colleagues who uh, perhaps hadn't much knowledge or interest in, in Northern Ireland. Um, so I fully understand these sensitivities, Michael, but I have a duty of care as well mm-hmm. to make sure that what we have agreed here with the support of the European Parliament, and I'm going in now to a discussion on Brexit within my own political group, is, is met. So these commitments that the UK has made and that Europe has made around the border issue are dealt with and that no one party with respect to the views of different parties has a right to veto progress and okay. I think we all want and need progress. Alright, I have to leave there. Listen, thank you very much indeed uh, for your time with us uh, this morning and for joining us uh, for that matter. Local Fine Gael MEP Mairead McGuinness who's Vice President of the European Parliament. Michael Michael Reed on on LMFM. Now, road closures uh, will remain in place until uh, the uh, area around Maharitloon where a sinkhole emerged is uh, deemed uh, to be safe. Uh, But there is some concern locally. Peter Doran is on the line and uh, you've a local business which you say is being impacted uh, by these road closures. Good morning, Michael. Yes, um Yes, we have done mortars, which would be a well-established business for the last 29 years. <clears throat> we have been hit massively. But not only have we been hit massively, I feel the power has been pulled apart, Michael. Um, we have people out of the houses, nowhere to go. 
We have schools affected, we have the local church affected, we have the local football community affected. And, of course, several businesses. Now, my business is, is hit dramatically. The road closed on the 24th from Climbing Cross to Kingscourt. A part, a section of it was opened on the 25th, which will bring you to the barrier, which, will, which is good from the Climbing Cross side. It'll bring you from Carrick right up to the barrier, which is past Tracy's Hotel and past our garage. From the Kingscourt side, it remains closed and has now for the last three and a half weeks, which means the people have to use by roads, which is not fit for purpose at this stage because the amount of vehicles going on that road now, they're not, they were never built for that. Um, this is the main link road between Carrick Cross, Cavan, Mead, and if you're heading for the west, Mullingar, whatever, this is the main link road. So all of a sudden, by roads are taking all this traffic and it has become a serious, serious matter. In fact, I would describe it as a national disgrace that the people of Marathon are being left out in this situation with very little support. Okay, but uh, the roads are, are closed uh, in the interest of public safety. You don't want that to be compromised, Absolutely do you? Absolutely not, Michael. You are totally right. You know, I, I, I would say from day one, health and safety is priority. Mm. And, you, and your, 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 business, your business is accessible from uh, the regional road. Uh, so what, what else uh, do you expect the council to do, given the concerns that they're receiving from the expertise uh, that uh, is at hand? OK. Signage should be one. People have gone round the roads in circles. You know, that's what's happening, because I put up signage, but the signage has been thrown down with the wind and bits and pieces. And you have people come on a journey, and they're just getting frustrated, because the minute they come out of Cagma Cross, it says, road closed, road closed, road closed. You know? Um, likewise in Kingscourt. And like I said, that's fine. But it's not the whole road. It's part of the road is closed, and the trucks are diverted. But the signage, Michael, I was, if this is going to go on an on, on, ongoing basis, the signage has to be out there and put up properly what's open, what's accessible, and what not. Because strangers are coming in, like around in circles. Like, we talk about health and safety. Absolutely. And I'd be forced to do that. But I'd have to question it. Why was it a month ago or six weeks ago? Obviously, when regulations are not being controlled. Because we shouldn't be in this mess. And the people in Maracoon are being left abandoned, in my opinion. My business is down probably 90%. Now, it's not all about Peter Dorn or Dorn Motors. It's about the local community, the local schools, the people out of the houses... The hotels, the local shops, I feel, at this point in time, very left aside the people of Maracloon and myself. Okay. That's where I feel. You're supposed right. to cast your vote, which we do, and I'm saying to the politicians today, you have to protect us. Okay. All right. Well, the council says uh, that the roads are closed uh, in uh, the interest of uh, public safety. But thank you for making that point with us on the programme this morning, Peter. Wednesday morning and uh, the local newspapers are in your shops. Let's take a, a look what's on uh, the front pages. Uh, Marie Kearns is here and you have uh, the Drogheda to Independent to begin with. I do indeed have it in front of me here. And Miracle Escape for a 12-year-old is the lead story of the Drogheda Independent. And that, Michael, tells the story of a 12-year-old boy who had a miraculous escape after being involved in a freak accident outside McDonald's shop in Hardman's Gardens on Saturday on Saturday afternoon, the youngster had been selling flags with his grandfather and was pinned to the shop front after being hit by a car. The paper reports that it's understood the motorist, a woman in her 70s, lost control of the car as she attempted to leave her parking space in front of the shop. And thankfully, the boy has been released from hospital. 
with minor injuries to his foot. Okay, and he makes uh, the front page of a, another local newspaper. That's right, mm. yes. He makes the front uh, page as well of the Drogheda Leader. But it's another story, Michael, that's probably likely to raise eyebrows on the front of the Drogheda Leader. Des Grant is reporting that Loud County Council executives are facing a revolt from Drogheda councillors after the executives proposed to slash the town's yearly €60,000 community grant allocation to just €20,000. And I suppose what makes this worse is that the cut to the Dundalk community grants is going from €60,000 to 26000 and that's causing uproar from the Drogheda councillors. OK, more cuts on uh, the front page story of uh, the Democrat. Yes, yes. This is reporting that one million in funding cut threats is, is the lead story of this paper. And it's not good news for community groups across the county who could be facing these massive cuts. Darnard McCabe writes that CEO Joan Martin, speaking at Monday's council meeting, said that she would be looking for the cuts in the council's discretionary budget. And it basically means, Michael, that tidy towns, groups, libraries and festivals, so on, could be affected by this. OK, Louth GAA's headquarters makes for a front page of the Dundalk leader. That's right. I mean, we would have heard about the plan to build this new county ground for a loud GAA in Dundalk hitting a stumbling block at Monday's meeting. And the reason for this, according to the Dundalk leader, is that the, there's a concern from councillors over the price of the land, uh, the sale of the land. They think that um, the council are willing to sell it for €400,000. And this is raising concern because the councillors believe, according to the story, that the land is worth a lot more. And they were due to vote on the proposals at Monday's meeting, but the topic was taken off the agenda at the last minute to allow talks to take place. And in the meantime, independent TD Peter Fitzpatrick is urging councillors not to let this golden opportunity for Louth slip through their fingers. All right. Uh, local politics makes for the front page story of the Argus in Dundalk. That's right, Michael. And that, of course, comes from our interview with Councillor John McGahan on the show last Friday. And deeply ashamed is the headline of the Argus. Uh, another story, though, inside on page 23, caught my eye. And it's devoted to the opening of the Dundalk Positive Mental Healthy Art Exhibition last week. And it features a very frank interview with local uh, priest Father Michael Cusack who opens up about his own experience of depression and says that no one is perfect imperfection is absolutely fine it's okay to be who you are so that's worth a read All right, uh, to Meath and uh, the Chronicle reports on how a a local woman is encouraging people who've uh, suffered uh, from sexual crimes to come forward That's right Michael this is a very harrowing read really by Louise Walsh who interviews uh, this brave woman Trish Flood who's a victim of sexual abuse and she chose to go public about her own horrific experience to try and encourage victims of historic crimes not to be afraid to come forward. The 47-year-old, whose attacker was recently sentenced to six years in prison, told the paper that after 30 years of reliving her hell on a daily basis, she took this painstaking decision to report her attacker and approved a decision that gave her back her life. 
Okay, well done to Trish Flood and uh, thanks for that, Marie. Uh, interesting stories. People might want to comment on them. They're the stories uh, that make uh, the news in the local papers uh, this week. Uh, you'll be back with some of the comments I that do people want to comment on them or if they want to comment on something else they've been hearing or to raise a, a, an issue with us. As always, we'd love to hear from you. You can call us now on 1850 Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. The doll is uh, to consider new legislation being proposed uh, by local TD and uh, Sinn Féin's spokesperson on transport, Imelda Munster, today. Imelda Munster is on the line and uh, you want Gardaí to have the power to seize and detain quad bikes and scrambler motorcycles. On green areas and public spaces, Mike, in particularly in residential areas, has been a huge problem and it's an increasing problem over the last number of years. But firstly, to say that the bill changes in the, under the current Road Traffic Act, a public space is defined as any public road, any street or any other um, place to which the public have access with vehicles. So this bill will extend the def- definition of the public space to include parks and green areas because it currently doesn't. Um, and under the, the Road Traffic Act, at the moment, the user of a quad bike or scrambler bike in a public place must mm. have insurance and tax and driver license and must wear a helmet. But over the years, in uh, particularly in major towns right across the state, we're seeing an increase of um, antisocial behaviour and dangerous behaviour um, where children, sometimes as young as 10, are on quad bikes and scramblers. But not on necessarily the on the public road. No, but that's, that's, that's the, the anomaly point that you're making, law, you yes. See. Yes, yeah. that's mm-hmm. the anomaly mm-hmm. in the law that's there at the minute. Now, we've, we brought this bill in in 2017. It's at sec- second stage now today. But uh, so far, um, I mean, the ministers, Minister Ross has, has always said that, oh, there is comprehensive legislation legislation in place but he also admitted um, that the guard authorities um, have indicated the use of the quad bikes and scramblers by youths in public parks has proven difficult to deal with from an enforce- enforcement perspective but that's because um, the legislation's not there Gardaí um, have no other option, they've no legislative power to deal with scrambler bikes being driven you know, in, in, on green areas or um, public parks, etc. And mm. another thing he said, which was quite remarkable, he said that guardian members are instructed not to pursue to pursue youths on bikes or scramblers owing to safety issues involved. You know, on the risk the, of the, the safety of the youngsters, death. is it or well, no, or the guardian? I mean, well, that's 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 the question he was saying, owing to the safety issues involved and the risk of serious injury or death. Mm. So he was saying that the opportunity to actually bring these vehicles to stop to a stop is rare. So does that mean the Guardian never to chase anybody breaking the law? Right. I mean, that's, that's, it doesn't make sense. You okay. know. I didn't hear uh, the minister say that, uh, but uh, as you presented, uh, it seems like a, a strange statement and one that needs uh, to be questioned further. What about yeah. quad bikes? Uh, as it stands, are, are they something that you can be licensed to drive on the public road? Yes. You can, you can say with... Um, well, you have to have you have to have your your license, your road tax, and what's it like uh, a motorbike license for a quad bike though? Yes, right, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. You have to have a license, and you must also wear a helmet. Mm. But the case, as we've seen over the years, and it's it's becoming a bigger problem. 
each year and we're Christmas coming as well. And the other thing is parents have to act responsible too. Children as young as 10, as young as 10 are getting mm. onto quads and scramblers. But you have even, I know even in, in Drada, there's certain green areas, Ballsgrove green area and Redmullen green area. Residents are plagued. Mm. They're out on the green area late at night. And, and if you push it over to the green and then drive it on the green, uh, you're not doing anything illegal. You're not doing anything illegal and the Gardaí have no, have no um, you know, the legislation's not mm. there that they, you know, they, they, they literally can't, can't do anything about it, you know. Mm. If, for example, um, if the Gardaí were to seize a quad bike or a scrambler, mm. they'd have to give it back with no fines or penalties. They can't sanction you know, they, they, well, they can't uh, sanction. Mm-hmm. If you're not doing anything illegal, unless you hit somebody or something like that, I, I presume that they shouldn't have seized it in the first instance. Uh, what, what about beaches? Well, beaches, beaches again, too, would be down to, it's more kind of a problem as such in public spaces, but beaches is something that could be considered too. The, the, the bill that we're bringing forward that says that any outdoor area, including public parks, to which members of the public have access to so it would cover those areas as well mm-hmm. as i said the anomaly is because there's nothing in legislation mm-hmm. to prevent it you know but it's 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 reckless behavior it's you know dangerous behavior you know but you have people constantly saying look at there just during the summer there that young couple that were sunbathing in the the park in darndale you know and the the scrambler come over the brow of the hill and the, the woman broke her pelvis and the, the husband had suffered catastrophic head injuries, you know. And again, that, that that lady had said that there's no law prohibiting the use of scrambler bikes in a public park. As I remember it, uh, the man involved uh, suffered life-changing brain-acquired injuries. Uh, yes, I, I, I take it that... neurological deficit is what the, uh, the, the doctors had described it, you know. Uh, severe traumatic brain injury, I think, is what they said at the time. You know, and it, but even on on green areas, if you have young kids maybe kicking a ball or something, and somebody comes on with a uh, quad or scrambler, you know, they're, they're putting people's lives in danger. Mm. Uh, and this is just a, a, in public areas, uh, because uh, I suppose uh, there are people uh, that have land of their own uh, that they would drive these things on. That wouldn't be impacted at all. No, it's in public areas, say for private land, um, you're talking about, say, farmers, farmers, for example, that would use quads more so mm. or any, you know, a similar type thing. They would have their, they'd be using it on their own private land and would have their, their insurance and all of that so they wouldn't actually be affected. It's predominantly to extend the definition of public spaces to include uh, parks and green areas. Mm. Uh, and uh, danger to the public. Yeah, I, I, I suppose I was asking you about uh, the quad bikes uh, and if you uh, could actually be licensed to drive them on the public road because I think to a large extent they are seen as toys, aren't they? Well, they're mechanically propelled mm. vehicles as yeah. well. You know, they're motorbikes. Oh, well, I know, yeah. yeah, yeah. And quads, mm. you know, I, I can't um, imagine anybody actually using one as a, a means of transport. Well, I've ne- no, mm. I've never yeah. seen one yeah. on a road. They mm. seem to, I mean, there's, there's clubs that are, now there's nothing in, mm. in Loud to the best of my knowledge, you know, motocross clubs or Viking clubs. And, um, you know, if this legislation is passed and there'd be an onus on local authorities to identify lands or venues to establish more of these clubs, if, you know, as mm-hmm. we, as it appears that they, 
the use in scramblers and quads is going to is set to increase. Okay, well, we'll uh, watch uh, what uh, reaction you get uh, today. As you say, it goes to second stage uh, when it goes before the House uh, this afternoon. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. That's uh, local TD and Sinn Féin's spokesperson on transport, Imelda Munster. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns is here with some of the calls and text messages that have been coming to us this morning. What have people been saying to you, Marie? Just before I get to that, Michael, can I just mention that emergency services are currently dealing with a road crash in Jenkinstown. The road is blocked in both directions, so delays can be expected for anybody travelling in that area. But back to our listeners. Noel from Drogheda phoned in during your interview with Mairead McGuinness at the top of the programme and says that there is talk at the moment of delaying Britain's exit from the EU for another year to allow a deal to be reached. He won Will that do any good though? Because all they have been doing is talking and they still haven't been able to come up with a solution. He just wonders, have they not had enough time to agree a deal? Well, I think if they reach a deal that you won't do it overnight because it's a very complicated process and it'll take some time to implement the spirit of that deal and indeed what has been agreed. So what they're saying now is that instead of it taking two years or 21 months as the case may be, they'll extend that by a year and give that extra 12 months, uh, that time to uh, implement the changes as a result of the agreement. Mary feels that the DUP has too much influence over Theresa May's government for such a small grouping. Everyone knows it would be a disaster for both the Republic and Northern Ireland if there's a hard border and she can't believe how blinkered the DUP is in all of this. Well, the DUP doesn't think it's blinkered and the DUP doesn't think that it has too much influence either for that matter. Um, another listener was in touch, John, to say that perhaps it's time for the Sinn Féin representatives in the north to have a change of heart and take up their seats um, in Westminster and play their part in negotiating a Brexit deal. When you hear their presidential candidates say that uh, she would consider wearing a poppy if she was elected president, maybe they will consi- reconsider their position. Okay. Uh, Michael Seamus from Dundalk was also in touch and says, Michael, never mind the unionist concerns. You keep banging on about the unionist concerns. What about the concerns of the rest of us? The DUP cannot be allowed to call the shots, Mm. say Seamus. I wasn't too impressed with you, Michael. I don't think you can dismiss them, I suppose. That's the point. Uh, And uh, if you're to reach an agreement, well, you have to take into account what the other side is taking. And I was hoping to represent that in the discussion that we had with Mairead McGuinness earlier. John from Navin phoned in and says Theresa May decided to leave the EU. She didn't consult Northern Ireland about it. The majority there voted against leaving. Now she's looking for a backdoor out of her mistakes, but she won't admit it. He felt that it was a good interview with Mairead McGuinness and says to you, Michael, keep up asking the hard questions. OK, well, uh, we'll ask some questions now of the Irish Bookmakers Association. Paul Tully is on the line. Good morning, Paul, and thanks for joining us. Uh, you're concerned about some of uh, the local bookie shops in uh, the region and indeed uh, the jobs uh, that are provided through these businesses uh, and you reckon a lot of them are going to close and with them a lot of jobs will be lost as a result of the increase in the betting tax. Good morning, Michael. How are you? I'm very well. That's good. Yeah, we, I've done the figures and with the increase in the betting tax, 
we're looking at losing, we have 19 premises around the country. We're looking at losing a minimum of half of those. I'd say we'd be lucky if we were seven or eight left running. Why is that? Basically, the tax that is imposed at the moment is a turnover tax. So every 100 euro that we take in, we hand back, we hand to the government one euro of that 100. Our, our, our business model is that it's a high turnover, low margin product, basically. We only make about 12-13%. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. To have a margin on every every pound that we turn over. Really, and then, that's our gross margin and our net margin. Over the year, we're happy, we're happy if we get half a percent or point six of a percent on our turnover. Well, you never lose, do you? Oh, you want to bet? Like you can see, you can see from all the the companies that have actually closed within the last five or six years: Hackett, Celtic, Bambury's, Shields. The bookmaker does lose. Our overheads are very, very high. Staffing is staffing cost is high. Rent is high. And getting pictures and data, mm. very, very high. So our expenses are very, very high. Well, I mean, a lot of people would contend that the bookie never loses, especially the people who lose to the bookies or the families uh, that they belong to. Uh, but having said that, uh, why do you believe uh, that this 1% increase in uh, a betting tax will result in uh, the closure of so many shops and the uh, loss of so many jobs? Well, it's actually a 100% increase. It's gone up from 1% to 2%. Yes, it's a 1% increase in the betting tax. Yeah, but yeah. for us, it's a 100% increase. Well, it's increase. a 1% increase in the betting tax. But yeah. why, why do you think it'll result in uh, these job losses? Is it because fewer people will bet? No, you see, that we can't pass on the tax. The bookmaker can't pass on the tax to, yes. to the customer. So by increasing the, the betting tax, all, all that's happening is that the bookmaker is paying more tax we don't pass it on to the customer. So it's not that the customer is going to feel any different at all. It's not going to affect his habits or his, what he does. It's just the bookmaker that is going to lose out. Mm. And it'll, it'll actually make my company unviable. At the moment we're paying, we pay over three and a half, 350,000 betting tax to the, to the government. If they double it up to 2%, we're paying an extra 350000 which my company cannot sustain. And will and that be used to help people recover from uh, the terrible situations uh, that uh, some people find themselves as a result of uh, gambling excessively? Absolutely. Like, we, we actually, at the moment, we already contribute to the Dunleary Charity Gambling Addiction Service. Like, we're already contributing towards that, and now the government are looking. I don't know what... What the government's idea is, but we already contribute to any of the gambling gambling addiction services, so we do. Mm. Uh, and is there an argument to put you out of business because of uh, the destruction uh, that ensues in people's lives from gambling addictions? Well, we don't. I don't see 
Okay, there are some people who have gambling addictions, but the majority of people who come into my shops are there for the social end of it. They come in to have the crack with the boys, enjoy a few bets, and it's it's an awful lot of people come into the betting office and spend a few hours there rather than going to the pub and drinking that sort of way. And at least they have a chance of getting the money back with me. There's no chance of getting it back with the publican. Okay, thanks for joining us, Paul Tully of the Irish Bookmakers Association there. Now let's go back to more of your thoughts and comments. Marie, what else have you got for us? Yes, Declan got in touch and he says that he was listening uh, to the local paper review about all the various cuts and was also listening to the show yesterday in relation in relation to the emergency repairs to houses. And he says, in that case, you think that the council would need to be getting the best price possible from the sale of the site that they own to the county board for any stadium and he's also wondering uh, where all the money is gone in the council and wonders if the annual accounts are made public every year that maybe somebody could have a look and see where cuts could be made that may not uh, affect community groups and people who need repairs. Uh, another listener on the same topic, Lorraine, got in touch and just wonders, has the money from government to local government been cut? It doesn't make sense that the council is running out of money, says Lorraine. On the presidential race, we had a couple of texts in. One listener says, what is it with the presidential candidates? Gavin Duffy was on Claire Byrne and instead of answering what qualified him for office, assumed he was spokesman for the four people present and criticised Sean Gallagher and Michael D. Higgins for not attending. Then you have Sean Gallagher, instead of promoting himself exclusively, tries to make a point of Michael D. Higgins not attending debates. Okay, well I'm sure they're all looking at the Irish Times with great interest today. Another listener, have a referendum to scrap the presidency, Michael. Waste of money and they have no power. Mm. And just finally, Jim texted in during your interview with Imelda Munster, just to say that at 2.30 to 3 o'clock nearly every day on Marley's Lane in Drogheda, a lad with a green helmet is on a motorbike doing wheelies and speeding around the area. Kids coming out of school. Jim fears that it's a disaster waiting to happen. Okay, I think uh, that's uh, the road uh, beside the radio station here, isn't it? It is indeed. uh, If I'm not mistaken, uh, I think the same young lad is in a car park, uh, so he's not on the public road, or at least uh, some of the time uh, that would be the case. All right, uh, thanks uh, for that, Marie, and everybody who's been in touch with us uh, today. If you'd like to add to what's been said, as always, we'd love to hear from you. Our telephone number is 1850-715-958. Michael Reed on LMFM. The Taoiseach has uh, told uh, the Dáil uh, that there will be further reform of Angarda Siakana and uh, there will be changes made in uh, the Child and Family Agency Tusla on foot of uh, the Charlton Tribunal report, the Disclosures uh, report. Uh, but he also called on members of uh, the opposition to correct the dull record. Elaine Lachlan is writing about this uh, for the Irish Examiner this morning and uh, she joins us now. Good morning to you, Elaine, and uh, thanks uh, for your time. The Taoiseach uh, was referring specifically to comments made in the House uh, about Francis Fitzgerald, the former minister, minister, and Noreen O'Sullivan, the former commissioner. Yes, well, the doll was was discussing the third interim report from um, Justice Charlton yesterday. And um, the report was published last week, I suppose, in the middle of another political storm um, around 
former minister now, Dennis Nocton. Um, so yesterday, TDs and the Taoiseach got a, got a chance to respond to this report. The Taoiseach coming out, as you said already, stating that they would try and improve Pusla, bring in for, further Garda reforms. But he also hit out at his opposition colleagues saying, you know, what they said in, you know, December of last year, especially around former former Tonish to Francis Fitzgerald was unacceptable and about Guards Commissioner Noreen O'Sullivan as well was unacceptable and that the, the record of the doll should be corrected. Um, now, as I said, we remember la- this time, well, slightly slightly further on the year than this time last year, but um, the Taoiseach himself had to correct the record of the doll on a number of occasions when he was discussing emails that former Tonishta Francis Fitzgerald received around the time of the Higgins Commission about what uh, what approach the legal team may have been taking in regards to the whistleblower Morris McCabe. Now, we know that last week's report fully exonerated um, Gareth McCabe um, and found that he was an upstanding figure, that he came out and, and you know, a really good whistleblower, I suppose, within the Garda Shikana, but there was this smear campaign um, which targeted him and impacted his family. By the um, Garda Commissioner, but uh, not the one that the Taoiseach was referring to, Martin Callanan, uh, her uh, predecessor, and also by the press officer, Dave Taylor. Exactly, yes. Well, there was harsh words against both those men, but on the flip side of that, both the also former Garda Commissioner, mm. Noreen O'Sullivan, was exonerated, found that she had no no real role in this. And also that Frances Fitzgerald, while she did receive emails and they were the subject of much con- controversy in the Dáil, she had a very busy profile as Justice Minister Antonita and uh, the judge found that all of the evidence she gave was in good faith and that she probably couldn't be expected to remember every single email that came across her desk given the vast portfolio that she was in charge of at the time. So, mm. you know, Fully, fully supportive of Francis Fitzgerald and um, I suppose exoneration Norian Sullivan as well, but coming down very harsh on the other two gentlemen. Yeah, uh, exonerating Norian Sullivan, but not to the extent of Francis Fitzgerald, at least as I understand it from uh, that very lengthy 400-page report, uh, because Justice Charlton said that at the time Martin Callanan uh, when he was the Garda Commissioner, went into the Justice Committee and described the behaviour of Morris McCabe and John Wilson as disgusting, uh, that there must have been some conversation in the car when they drove uh, away uh, from Leinster House uh, that day. That is uh, Martin Callan and Noreen O'Sullivan, who was uh, the Deputy Commissioner at the time. Exactly, yes. So not quite as um, quite as, as gleaming in his report about Noreen O'Sullivan. So he felt she would have had some knowledge of it, but wasn't complicit. Exactly, that he, he, she was not the key to this smear campaign, but given her, her profile or her position as Deputy Commissioner, he expected that she should have had some sort of a, a knowledge or even, a, you know, a, an inkling, mm. um, I suppose, that this may have been going on. But he really, uh, he should go back to the I suppose, in the doll yesterday, came down harsh on members of the opposition. While he didn't mention them in mm. name, he definitely said that those who made statements last year and essentially forced a good woman out of office, Francis Fitzgerald, um, should come in, should correct the do- doll record. He mentioned the fact that he had to do so last year and that he had done the right thing, that he appealed to fellow members of the opposition to also do the right thing, come in, correct the Dáil record, which is a, 
you know, it's a very serious mm. thing to do to, to, to correct the Dáil record. It's, it's not done lightly. All right. Uh, well, as I understand it from your report in the Examiner this morning, Elaine, uh, he did mention one politician, or at least he, he responded to Brendan Howland, who uh, was under the impression that the Taoiseach had been talking about him. Well, if he was under the impression or, or whether he just wanted to make it clear that he had no part in this, mm. I'm not sure, but he definitely made uh, great protestations in the Dáil yesterday when this began, uh, or when, when the Taoiseach began to speak about this, saying, you know, that's not true, that's not true. And the Taoiseach turned to Mr Howland and said, I'm not speaking about you. Um, so obviously ruling the Labour leader out mm. of, of the, the finger pointing. Um, and Bernard Howland seems pretty happy with that. He then kind of quietened down a bit and allowed the Taoiseach to continue on and to ask deputies, um, as I said, to correct the doll record now it remains to be seen whether they will do that or not. And who who is it do you think he might have been talking about? Because I suppose well, that leaves time, Michal Martin and Jerry Adams who'd have been the leader of Sinn Féin at the time and both heaped uh, uh, an inordinately amount of pressure on the then Justice Minister Francis Fitzgerald. Yes, and at the time I suppose all of the opposition were essentially rounding on um, the Thánaiste. It was subject to much debate and as I said the Taoiseach had to come in several times to the doll to take questions and make statements on it. The Thánaiste, former Thánaiste herself, came into the doll um, and tried to, to lay down the series of events as she remembered them. So there was this grilling over a number of days um, which we didn't see last week with Dennis Nocton because he came into the doll and resigned himself. But there was this build-up um, of questions and interrogation and statements in the doll um, towards the end of last year. And that resulted in both the Taoiseach um, and Fianna Fáil leader Michal Martin coming together over a weekend, trying to hammer out a deal or find a way forward without calling a general election. Um, and then we saw earlier the, the following week after those weekend discussions that the Tánaiste resigned of her own free will. Um, and as I said last week, Judge Charlton made reference to that stating that she had 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 done this, had, had stepped down um, in the interest of the public and for the public good, um, and that essentially a good woman had resigned for no reason, only to protect the country and for the, the public good. So she was, she was fully exonerated on that front. Okay, and as you say, the Taoiseach uh, was commenting uh, on foot of uh, the report from Justice Peter Charlton. Uh, the Taoiseach also speaking in the Dáil yesterday about uh, another report uh, from uh, Justice Charles Meenan uh, on the ch- cervical check scandal, and that's uh, recommending a statutory uh, tribunal of compensation uh, for women who've uh, been wrongly diagnosed. Uh, but he, he was talking uh, about the ongoing contracts uh, that the state has with laboratories and I think uh, there was concern that those contracts wouldn't be renewed and that uh, the National Screening Programme might have been in doubt had they not been renewed by last weekend but the talks are ongoing are they? Yes and the Taoiseach just updated the doll yesterday and apologies I'm in the doll now the 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 doll bells behind me Um, but he updated the doll yesterday stating that talks were ongoing and it was the, uh, the government's hope and intention to continue with this vital screening service. Um, he mentioned as well that there'll be a new testing system, a HVPV testing uh, system rolled out from next year. That's a lot more accurate, a lot higher quality, um, and so women will be happy, I suppose, or happier, uh, more content to get that sort of a system rather than the current one. Um, so he said, you know, talks are still ongoing, we're, we're, we're aiming to continue with this 
service and he fully denied any suggestions that they were working behind the scenes um, in terms of indemnifying the laboratories who were at the at the, uh, the centre mm-hmm. of this controversy, both on this side of the Atlantic and in the US. That is not going on. He, he made that very clear. Uh, and uh, to some degree, you can understand the concerns that the labs might have uh, in terms of the legal cases, given that there is a, a margin of error. And that margin of error feeds into what this tribunal will try to establish as to whether it was malpractice or uh, acceptable within that ma- margin of error that women are, are given the wrong diagnosis. Yes, and I suppose this is this leads on from promises that were made in the Dáil in April and May that no woman would have to be hauled through the court case like we saw with Vicky Phelan um, and a number of other women having to go to the High Court to get some sort of um, payout for lack of a better term. Mm, compensation, yes. Compensation, mm-hmm, yeah, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, that this will be held in private. It'll be a tribunal. Now, it's not a no-fault redress scheme, which you know people had hoped for and the government had indicated would be put in place. It's a tribunal. It'll be held in private. Um, the women and their families impacted will be able to either appear before the tribunal um, and give their side of the story or can do so with written evidence. Um, so, you know, in some cases, the ordeal of even having to, to go and, and give evidence mm. while it's in private may be a bit too much for people they can they can submit written statements with the view to kind of getting these uh, claims through quicker, faster and easier for women that they don't feel they're cross-examined um, for something that was out of their control. All right. Uh, avoiding that adversarial uh, approach uh, that so many women have found difficult to, to go through. Uh, uh, undoubtedly, uh, we'll be hearing more on those recommendations from Justice Meenan uh, and as to whether that tribunal will be established because I think there's also arguments uh, for women to go to court, isn't there, so that they can tell their story and that their story can be made public in the way Vicky Phelan's story was made public. Uh, but uh, I think as uh, her solicitor has been saying, uh, both systems may suit uh, depending on the person because not everybody is the same. Exactly. And as you said, some people may want to vent um, what happened to them in public or through court or whatever. We were speaking about at least 221 women, um, some who sadly have passed away um, and their families now at this stage are, are remaining. So, as you said, some may want to go quietly and quickly through this tribunal process. Others may want to make their ordeal public. And that's their entitlement. Um, so as you said the two may run in tandem and it'll be up to each individual to make their own decision about what they do and what road they go down. Elaine, many thanks for joining us uh, and uh, for uh, that analysis uh, this morning Elaine Lachlan, political correspondent with the Irish Examiner. Michael Reed on LMFM. In nine days' time, you'll be voting in uh, the presidential election. You'll have six candidates uh, to choose from. One of those is the independent candidate, Sean Gallagher, who joins us now. Good morning to you, and uh, thanks uh, for joining us here on the programme. We've invited all of the candidates to speak to us at some stage before polling day. Uh, And like all of the other candidates, perhaps uh, you'd like uh, to begin briefly by setting out your stall for us and telling people why you believe they should vote for you. You're very welcome, Michael, and nice to be with you. Good morning. Um, Yes, uh, the key area is that uh, if I was honoured to be elected as president for the next seven years uh, would be to focus on, in addition to the constitutional role 
laid down as, as protector of the constitution and the ceremonial role uh, working obviously to welcome heads of state and state visits but more importantly than that uh, what I would like to outline are a number of areas uh, that are emerge from my own life life experience and those areas which I'd like to prioritize the first of those is in the area of ability as somebody who has grown up myself with a visual impairment and struggled with my sight uh, as, a, as a child during school I know the challenges that many people face dealing with disability. And so on the 3rd of December of this year, if honoured to be elected, I would launch a year-long initiative uh, on ability, where we focus on a person's ability rather than their disability. And if I could look back, Michael, in seven years' time and say that I, along with others, had helped change the public's perception around those who have a disability in our society, where people would see not just a disability, but the ability of the person would be important and to empower individuals with a disability to step forward so that they have a a right to live their life to the best of their ability. And if we could create Ireland as a role model of inclusivity about how a country can can include uh, citizens with a disability or indeed difference. So ability is important to me. The other areas are volunteerism and our community uh, and creating sustainable communities, international trade and the creation Uh, and progression of the all-island, the unification of our people. So on volunteerism and community, as somebody who was a professional youth worker and learned much of my skills, many of my skills through my involvement in communities, I think volunteerism is at the very heart, at the very best of what we do as Irish people. But I think it needs to be celebrated and acknowledged more than ever so that we encourage more people to continue to play their role in society, great work, whether that's tidy towns, youth groups, athletics groups, boxing clubs, football clubs, work that government could never do and never fund. We need that to continue. We need to encourage more people into that, that sense of self-determination that we come together collectively to improve our own communities. Mm. I think, too, the area of trade as somebody who has been a champion for small and medium-sized businesses across the country for the last 25 years, including, you know, more than uh, 15 years in, in, in Dundalk and Louth, but serving on the North-South trade body set up under the Good Friday Agreement, helping to lead trade missions abroad. On the back of Brexit, the exit of the UK from Brexit, we're going to see those ramifications kick in and we're going to need to help work with government uh, and the, the, the arms of the state, whether that's Enterprise Ireland, IDA, Board BIA, and others, Tourism Ireland, to help continue to attract investment into Ireland and also open up new markets for our small and medium-sized companies okay. across the country. I might stop you if you don't mind, sure, uh, but before yeah. you talk about the fourth strand uh, sure. and trying to bring about a, a united Ireland, and maybe we can conclude a, 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 on that particular sure. aspect of your candidature. But uh, before we do that, maybe uh, you'd tell us who you are, because I fear there's possibly a lot of people listening to us this morning who've never heard of Sean Gallagher. Uh, you ran in the last presidential election, uh, but that uh, was at a, a time when you were known because you used to be on the telly. And uh, now there's a, a lot of people who will go out uh, on Friday week uh, to vote uh, and will have never seen you on that programme. So who is Sean Gallagher and why would you be able to achieve these things? And that's a really good question, Michael. So firstly, I grew up in a small village in Cavan, and um, my, my, my challenges growing up, as I mentioned, were struggling with my sight mm. and struggling through an educational system, which at a time wouldn't have had educational psychologists and others. So, but it did develop in me a strong sense of resilience. My, my defining moments, I think, were outside the educational system. 
Um, the first of those being when I set up a local Faroiga Youth Club, I got to understand um, local youth politics. I got to understand, uh, you know, youth work mm. and the importance of, you know, the development of young people. And that led me into a whole area of community development. Uh, when I was uh, starting my career, I started in agriculture and farming. I attended agricultural college and began in farming and farm business. Uh, and then I moved into professional youth work and became one of Ireland's first uh, trained professional youth workers. And that led me then to work with young people with um, in Young Offenders. Helped me to uh, I worked with the NAV and Traveller community, Michael and Nell McDonough. Uh, and it also brought me in then to spend a number of years writing Ireland's first wellness life skills program, mm. equipping young people with the skills to avoid the alcohol misuse of alcohol uh, and drug abuse. And I think and you're so a successful businessman, but for young people listening to us, as somebody mm. who's worked with young people, I'm sure you're acutely aware that there's a, a lot of young people uh, who won't remember who was on the telly seven years ago who will be uh, entitled to uh, a vote in this election, some of them voting for the first time for that matter, and they'll be saying, who is this fella? And uh, if he was good at doing all of those things, surely we know of them well i mean it's like everybody who steps forward for election i mean i've uh, worked at a diversity of backgrounds youth work community work uh, and and yes i've been a business person and while i was on the tv uh with dragon's den i probably spent more time working with the traveling community in navin than i did in total in dragon's den but i have been a champion and i've also for the last six years michael traveled to a different county every week um, uh, you know, profiling uh, the experience of our small and medium-sized companies to inspire young people and others to start businesses. But I've also, as I go to each county and visit a company, I, I usually call into either a primary or secondary school or meet a community group, and I share my experience to help encourage and motivate young people. I spend a lot of time mentoring young people. Mm-hmm. I spend a lot of time mentoring uh, companies as well. And then obviously in the last seven years, you know, people often say, well, where have you been? Do you think the Fianna Fáil government uh, served young people well? The Fianna Fáil government? Yes, the last Fianna Fáil government. Well, I'm... I'm uh, what's the relevance? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I surprise, surprise me. Have you ever voted for anybody other than Fianna Fáil? I voted for individuals, yes. But You're Fianna Fáil to the core, aren't you? I started uh, in Faroiga when I was 17, Macro when I was 18, and I joined Ogrefina Fall when I was 21. Yeah, and mm. I've always been very proud of my time uh, involved in, uh, in Fianna Fáil. I think it's important. And, mm. and sat in the national executive for a while. Uh, but uh, do you believe that the last Fianna Fáil government served young people well? I, I'm not sure what you're getting, Michael, because what, I'm, what I'm, I'm talking about is... Um, I'm not um, a Fianna Fáil candidate. I'm an independent candidate in the election. And uh, while I've received the support throughout the, uh, the country from local authorities... Well, people would associate you with... from Fianna Fáil mm, and Fianna Gael People would associate you with Fianna Fáil, so that's why I was asking. Like, you know, I mean, as a, a former member of the executive and somebody uh, who hasn't told me they voted for anybody other than Fianna Fáil, I I'd have thought that it was a relevant question, given that you're talking about promoting yeah. the well, well-being of young people in this country. Uh, there was a, a party that you've been a member of that was in government for uh, most uh, of this country's history, uh, and I was asking you how they serve the young people of the country. Well, I mean, all all uh, all governments, uh, and I'm and the, what's important about this role uh, of the president that this is outside of party politics, uh, Michael. While the ro- route 
to getting a nomination may be political. The office is not political. Whoever serves as president is not a member of a political party and, and the role is not uh, not political. So, I mean, I have been in Fianna Fáil and uh, I, I'm proud of my time in Fianna Fáil uh, and I'm, I'm happy uh, to see more and more people mm. becoming okay. active in all political okay. forms of okay. life. Okay, okay. Uh, I mean, I, I'm sure people uh, are interested to hear you uh, criticise uh, the incumbent president, Michael E. Higgins, and would see that uh, as a, a, a political statement, uh, but are unwilling to make criticism of a, a country that allowed the country to, of a government that allowed the country to sink into the sea, which uh, destroyed the lives of so many young people, uh, and many of them emigrated uh, and saw their fortunes turn on their heads. I'm, um, to be very clear, I have not been critical of Michael D. Higgins as a person. I have been critical of the behavior of the uh, holder of the office on the issues uh, of tr- uh, transparency and trust. That, and these are standards he himself spoke about in 2011, um, that, that, that the holder of the office of president should satisfy concerns and trust and transparency. And he told us, uh, absolutely assured the nation that he was going to serve one term. Now he's changed that. He's talked about transparency uh, in the finances and, and, and we're being told now that he will give that transparency if we elect him for another seven years. I don't think that's transparent. And Michael D. Higgins was president of the Labour Party when Eamon, and sat behind Eamon Gilmore in the chamber and in, the, in, in Dáil Éireann when Eamon Gilmore called for the resignation of the Can at the time because of what he said was extravagance within international travel. Uh, and the defense at that time from the Cancolia was that he didn't organize it directly. It was organized by the department. The very same defense that Michael D. Higgins is putting up now. If that was wrong in 2009 and they were calling for the head of the Cancolia, John O'Donnell at the time, why is that not wrong now? And I'm just wondering, is this double standards from Michael D.? Okay, well, we leave that to people uh, because we don't have uh, the time to tease that out here to uh, contemplate themselves. Uh, You uh, wanted to talk about a fourth strand of your candidature, which was uh, to work to develop uh, an all-Ireland or to reunite Ireland, uh, I suppose uh, you could say. Uh, Have you ever been a a supporter of an armed struggle uh, to uh, unite Ireland? No, I've never been a supporter of violence, um, and um, I was very taken uh, in 1985 when I first met John Hume by his language and his philosophy. He himself, who had never supported uh, the the armed struggle or conflict or violence, that he talked about the importance of uniting people, that, that difference was often an accident of birth. And so it was about the, the creating a, a, an environment where both traditions could live in harmony. And of course, you know, much has happened uh, in the last 20 years uh, since the Good Friday Agreement. And I have been involved on the north-south trade body, helping to establish links, uh, you know, with the all-island economy, which is now more important in the context of Brexit. But I was very impressed, and it was probably the first president other than Mary Robinson that I became inspired by, which was the work of Mary McAleese and her husband, Martin, who did incredible work, Michael, to reach out into the loyalist communities and indeed to talk and approach and work with the paramilitaries uh, to to begin to forge links, which led to relationships that I think are ultimately uh, at the foundation of any talks about a unification of territory. We must first 
unite individuals and communities. And, uh, and that's where I think the conversation needs to go back to and we need to continue to carry on the work that Mary McAleese did and Martin McAleese. And I would like to be involved in leading that conversation. In that context, uh, in the context of working towards uh, reuniting Ireland uh, and indeed uh, your opposition to violence and an armed struggle, if instead of the six names that we have on the ticket for the 26th, there were just two names, uh, who would you vote for if you were choosing between Eamon de Valera and Michael Collins? Well, thankfully, that's not a case, and that's a very hypothetical question. I mean, what's important now is to deal with the candidates that we have and the situation that we have. I couldn't shape the history of Ireland, but my role now is to see what I can do to shape the future. And I, I want to, as president, focus clearly on what's laid out in our constitution, which is that we would seek to unite the people of the territory of, of Ireland. And I know you know, from where I grew up in Cavan, just on the borders of Fermanagh with the Legge Kelly checkpoints, of, of being, you know, maybe 16 miles away from where Arlene Foster grew up. And we would never, ever have had an opportunity to meet either through the educational system, through a recreational system, or through politics or religion. It was just, we were, while geographically we were closest, we were worlds apart and everything else. We need to create now opportunities for young people, for sports groups, for community organizations to meet to work together and to understand their similarities more than their differences and then to create a sense of harmony where people can live together, respecting, and I think that's the most important thing, awareness, understanding, but respect of everybody's tradition. Okay, Sean, look, thanks uh, for joining us uh, this morning. We'd like to wish you, indeed, all of the candidates, uh, the best of luck in uh, the remaining days of uh, the campaign. And uh, as I say, thank you for joining us. You're very welcome, Michael. Thank you and to all your listeners. Independent candidate, Sean Gallagher. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, hundreds of uh, people gathered outside of Leinster House yesterday demanding uh, the government to act on climate change. Uh, Claudia Tormey joins us to tell us a little bit more about this. Uh, she represents uh, the Dublin Ecofeminist Collective, which organised uh, this protest. Good morning, Claudia. Thanks uh, for joining us. Uh, it was co-hosted, I understand, by the Stop Climate Chaos Coalition, Young Friends of the Earth and uh, the Not Here, Not Anywhere group. Uh, am I right in thinking that this was young people coming together to voice their concerns about the world we live in today or indeed the world that we hope to live in, for that matter, in 12 years from now. Good morning, Michael. Um, thanks for having me on the show. Um, yes, yesterday was a huge effort by lots of young people who are just pissed off and really concerned about their future. Um, the Dublin Ecofeminist Collective and Young Friends of the Earth, and Not Here, Not Anywhere, are very much youth-led, um, and they pulled in Stop Climate Chaos as a support. And last week, it was only last Thursday, it was decided to have the demonstration that happened yesterday. And it was huge. I mean, just a number of days, it took hundreds of people to gather. We had over almost 2,000 people interested on the Facebook page. So this is definitely showing that people are engaged, they're, they're concerned, and they want the government to take action. Um, they've already expressed their concerns to the government. Um, last year, the Citizens' Assembly gave 13 recommendations for how the Irish government can lead on climate. And as far as we can see, the government have not taken those actions and people are pissed off. They want to see action because they can see that we're running out of time. 
we got a warning last week from the IPCC report saying we have 12 mm. years to have our emissions. It's time for the government to step up. Right, uh, and you decided or agreed last Thursday to hold this demonstration yesterday. Uh, that was the day after the budget, and the budget, you would contend, was the opportunity to increase carbon tax. Yes, um, I think the budget was actually earlier in the week. So the IPCC report came out, and then I think it was the next day the budget came Of course, came out. yeah, so bigger part. Um, and then it was kind yeah. of... Mm-hmm. Among our mm. our activist groups, mm. we were just kind of getting a bit overwhelmed and felt, oh my God, what are we going to do? We need to do something. So then we got together and we made this happen. And we believe that more people need to, to get together and organize and start using their voices in their local communities. Go and knock on your TD's doors. Call them up. Tell them what you're concerned about. I mean, we really need to think about this. Climate change is going to affect everybody you know and it's going to affect us in the future like i mean we're in our 20s and 30s we can see that it's going to happen in our lifetime Mm. and you might be thinking about your children or your grandchildren and we really need to roll up our sleeves and do something about this because if we don't we're really going to regret it we didn't why well what is it you're worried about uh claudia i I mean if uh, donald trump thinks all of this is uh, fake news uh, i suppose what difference does it make in the first instance if uh, the government uh, decides uh, to uh, act on climate change itself, given that uh, America is going to opt out of uh, the Paris uh, Accord? And uh, uh, apart from that, uh, is there any hope uh, if uh, countries, uh, big countries like uh, America don't do something regardless of what we do in this country? Well, I think we need to look closer to home and not always look across the ocean of, of what other people are doing. Um, Ireland is the second highest polluter in the European Union and we need to act upon what we're doing ourselves. Um, Donald Trump is a businessman, not a scientist. We need to believe science, not people who are heavily invested in fossil fuels and have profit over people's well-being in their agenda. Um, so I don't know why this is always part of the conversation and why this is always a distraction from the fact that climate change is happening right now. We can see it this summer happens. Mm. We have droughts, we have hurricanes, we have floods. Um, our agriculture is suffering because we're, we can't grow our crops, we, we can't produce what we need to produce. Um, you know, it's, it's damaging our infrastructure. We're not prepared for this and we need to get ready and we need to put in the mitigation measures we need to put in adaptation measures mm. and there's so much we need to do. But I mean, it can be done. We have time. We have technology. We have the willpower. Everybody's ready except for government. What about people who will tell you that they can't uh, afford an increase in uh, the carbon tax? Three cent on a, a litre of petrol, I think, is what would have been expected or an extra euro per bag of coal. Well, I mean, if the government was smart and if it was thinking about communities, it would be doing it in a wise way where it would be taxing industry and those and reducing taxes elsewhere so it wouldn't be hitting people hard. And also, like, I mean, when you're putting in taxes like a fossil fuel, uh, a carbon tax, it's putting money into the infrastructure for an alternative. So where we're paying money to phase out fossil fuels, we're putting money into renewable energy and infrastructure for the transition so i mean in rural areas there should be a focus on on putting more um charging points for electrical vehicles putting more public transport there supporting communities in the transition and not 
hitting people hard just by charging them more money and making it feel like it's the individual's responsibility where it shouldn't be. It should be the government ensuring that people are not going to be affected, those who are most vulnerable. Mm. It needs to be government hitting people who are causing the problem in the first place. And we may end up paying for it anyway uh, because of the fines for not reaching our our targets. And it's going to be Mm. so much more severe down the line if we don't act now. Um, I mean, if we pay a little bit now, it's going to do us a huge favour if we just forget about it and don't do anything. Well, it's the fines uh, that uh, may uh, ensue because of us not reaching the targets. Uh, We were to reduce emissions on 2005 levels by 20%, uh, but the EPA says uh, that by 2020, it'll be by just 1%. We leave it there for the moment, though, Claudia, and thank you indeed for joining us. Claudia Tormey, spokesperson for the Dublin Eco-Feminist Collective, brings our programme to its conclusion today. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. 